Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We are on schedule to get Jesus born by Christmas. I'm making huge sacrifices to do that. I just want you to know I'm not used to preaching this many verses each Sunday, but I'll probably recover. It's common to hear people say things like, God bless you or the Lord bless you. And we say that and what we're really saying is, I want God to extend special favor to you so that you will be happy. As a matter of fact, that's what the word blessed means. It means happy. If you are a blessed person, you are a happy person. And that is what we see, for instance, in the familiar Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, we have blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the, those who mourn and blessed are the gentle or humble or meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And what is interesting is, is those beatitudes don't say, blessed will you be, but blessed are you. If those qualities are yours, you are blessed. As a matter of fact, if you are a believer, you are exceedingly blessed. Paul in Ephesians 1, 3, speaking to believers, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us blessed us, made happen to us every spiritual blessing and the heavenly places in Christ. Every one. And so when you're driving around, and I don't know about you, and maybe you have one of these in your car, God bless America. The fact is, you're already blessed. We live in the most blessed country In the world. And all you need to do is travel to any other country in the world, spend some time there. When you come back, you want to kiss the ground here. We are so blessed. Do you know that our country, all by itself, out of all the countries of the world, consumes 60% of the world's resources? People, that is a blessing. I mean, it borders on severe indulgence. Is our country perfect? No. Is it blessed? Absolutely. Now, what the bumper stickers really need to say instead of God bless America is America, bless God by obeying his word. That's what the bumper stickers need to say, because we have been blessed. And for those who have repented of their sins, for those who have received Jesus Christ and are trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection to save them, they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ they cannot receive anymore. They have all they could ever have. And so what we need to do is we need to give God thanks because he has blessed us. And that is what this passage is about this morning. It's about worshiping God in thanksgiving and praise. Now we remember that we've already learned that Mary is visited by an angel, the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel 
appears to her, tells her that she is going to give birth to none other than the Messiah, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Redeemer and Savior of Israel. And she is going to give birth while yet a virgin because the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. And for that reason, the child will be a holy child and will be the very Son of God. And after the angel leaves, we learn that Mary in haste hurries to the hill country of Judea because out of all the people she knows, she, she figures there's only one person who's going to be able to believe her. And that is Elizabeth. Because it just so happens that Elizabeth, even though she is an older woman, even though she has been barren all of her life and she is beyond the age of bearing children, is now pregnant. And that the angel visited her also. And when Mary enters into the room, Elizabeth sees her and is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to proclaim blessings. The baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb and she utters incredible blessings. She says, blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, the son of God. Blessed am I because now you're here with me and blessed are you because you have believed the word of the Lord. And remember, Mary isn't exactly sure when the angel leaves her just when all of these things are going to take place. I mean, she knew they were going to take place and she believed they were going to take place. But, you know, when is it going to happen? When is the power of the most high going to overshadow me so that I become pregnant with the very son of God? She doesn't know until this moment because contained in Elizabeth's utterance of praise, Elizabeth makes it very clear that at that moment, Mary is pregnant. She says, blessed is the fruit of your womb right now. And not only that, she says, how can it be that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me? It seems that when Mary said to the angel Gabriel, let it be done at that very moment, that very instant. The miraculous conception took place and she began to construct in her womb the very son of God. Now, just stop and think about this for a little bit. You need to go back. Just imagine what it must have been like for Mary. Hear this young lady who a day or two before was a nobody. You know, living in a non-place was really probably destined to, it seemed, just live an obscure life and then die in obscurity, having accomplished basically nothing. Now, though, imagine what it would be like to... Go from total obscurity and insignificance to now being the very mother of the son of God. Now you are standing in your cousin's house who is miraculously pregnant, though barren all of her younger years, though now in her old age. 
You have had a visit by an angel. You have been told that you alone out of all the women who ever will live will be the mother of the Messiah. And you go to the only person you think who will believe you, Elizabeth, and she showers you with this incredible blessing. How would you feel? How would you respond? What would you do? Take a nap? Read the morning scroll? You know, what would you do? You would probably do the same thing that Mary did. You would fall down on your knees and you would praise God for his incredible blessing in your life. That is the normal and right response when God blesses you is to praise God and thank him for all that he has given you. And this is exactly what Mary does. And her words are recorded for us to be blessed by here in the ch- chapter one of Luke. And Mary's utterance is, is it's incredible. It, it's at one time a, a song. It's a prayer. It's a praise. It's almost like a reflection. It's beautiful. It's amazing. One of the most incredible utterances found in all the Bible. And Mary being a, a young Jewish girl, having been steeped in all of the, the worship songs that the Jews sang, the, the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, the song of Asap, the song of, of Hannah. She, she has all of that into her mind, probably has them all memorized like most Jews did. She has that all in her mind. And now... All of this truth from the time the angel left all of her journey to the hill country of Judea. She's just pondering these things in her heart. She's just amazed at what God is doing for her. And then when she enters into Elizabeth's house to have this prophetic utterance directed at her. She begins to utter out this incredible song and commentators go crazy on this thing. I think I read for about six hours nonstop just commentators talking about different aspects of this song. And they talk about, you know, its form and its strophes and its parallelism and its chiastic structure. Its themes and, and theological significance and motifs. How it is so eloquent and has this profound simplicity. And the song is so great and it's so deep and it's so packed with theological truth that some people have said that Mary, a young girl, could have never written it. It's too great. Mary, of course, was probably in her young teens, according to theologian, prelate Jeff Jones. She was a junior higher. And people have wondered, how could anyone, how could anyone utter such an incredible song of praise? Well, you have to remember, she lived in a different time in a different culture where you memorized things. She knew the scriptures. She knew the songs. The angel had appeared to her. She was a devout, godly young lady. And now, fueled by the angel's visit, fueled by her knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, fueled by the prophetic utterance of Elizabeth, fueled by the fact that she is at that moment carrying the very Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Mary begins to sing out in praise. And so follow along as I read verses 46 through 
56 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul exalts in the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. And he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then Luke comments. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned home. I think, as Dave said, I could probably spend a whole year on this. No problem. But even if I spent a whole year preaching on these different themes, I could not exhaust them. As the psalmist said in Psalm 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me and I cannot attain it. And what we are going to do this morning is we are just going to scratch the surface of this song. And I hope to bring out just to your mind two major points of application as we look. The first point of application comes from verses 46 and 47. The other comes from verses 48 and following. The first point of application is this. You need to let your life be full of worship to God. Look at verse 46. We see Mary's first words. Mary says, my soul, my inner being exalts in the Lord. And in the Latin version of the Greek New Testament, this word exalt is translated magnificat. That is the Latin word. And that is why this is often referred to as the magnificat of Mary. And the basic meaning of the word exalt is to enlarge, to make great, to expand, to magnify, to highly esteem. And that's what Mary's doing right now. And it's a present tense verb, which means she has been ever since the angel left her. She's just been boiling over, just magnify and lifting up God because of what he is doing in her life. And that should describe your life as well. It should describe my life. Because look at all that God has done for us. If you stop and count your blessings and name them one by one. When you stop to consider all the things that God has done. You have reason just like Mary to praise God. Look at the second line of verse 46. She goes on to say in my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior. Mary uses the synonym soul in the first line and spirit in the second line. They're virtually identical. She uses the word exalt in the first line and rejoiced in the second line. And what's interesting is in the first line, she's saying, I am continually exalting. And then she says, and my spirit has past tense rejoiced. 
not only was she in the ongoing process of exalting God, she looked back and said, and guess what? I have been doing it. And that's what you and I need to be doing too. Let me ask you, when you look at your life, even to last week, is your life characterized by exalting God and rejoicing in him exceedingly? If not, why not? Do you feel unblessed? Like you need more blessing? If you're a believer, you already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You already live in one of the greatest countries of the world. The most blessed country in the world. And so are you rejoicing greatly in God? This is what we need to be doing. And as I looked at the scriptures and I looked at this and I started looking at all the parallels, it just makes you wonder what scriptures or truths Mary has rolling around in her head when she makes these little phrases like this. You can virtually go to any place, uh, many places in the Old Testament and find parallels of every line mentioned here. Listen to what Psalm 108, 1 through 5 says. The psalmist says this. He teaches us how to praise God. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises, even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I like that. You wake up the dawn, you're praising God so much. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. Think back last week. Sound familiar? Last month? Within the last six months, was there ever a time apart from corporate worship that that described you? If not, you may be asking yourself, how do I get there? And you know what? We find out here. We find out how to get there here. You take time to meditate on who God is and what God has done and you get there. And if you look at God and you look at all the things that he has blessed you with and that doesn't move you to praise him, your your heart is a stone. And you need a new one. You need a new one. You need to cry out to God in repentance and faith. You need to ask Jesus Christ to save you and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior And he will take away your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is willing and wanting to praise him because he has blessed you. Now, notice in verse at the in verse 47. At the end, Mary refers to the Lord as God, my savior. Now, some have taught that Mary was sinless that she was perfect and that she was not speaking of God as actually a savior from sins, but just nothing more than a deliverer from oppressors. 
But we know from the word of God that all men are sinners, that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Mary is blessed not because she's sinless. She's blessed because though a sinner, sinner, she is chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah. And that makes her blessed. And so she should never be prayed to. She should never be worshipped. Never should we think she is a co-redeemer with Christ. But she should be honored because God has honored her. She is blessed because God has blessed her. And this is what makes her such an amazing figure in the scriptures. No, when Mary said, God, my savior, she meant God, my savior, the one who's going to save me from my sins When the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, the angel said, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will what? Save his people from their sins. That was the significance of the very birth of the Messiah. And Mary, like all of mankind, being a sinner is now rejoicing in God, her savior. So we learn from verses 46 and 47 That our lives, like Mary, should be characterized by just giving abundant praise to God, rejoicing in God, exalting God, worshiping God, because that's why he has saved us. That's why he has created us. The problem is, is a lot of times we forget why we need to praise God and we need some fuel for the fire. We need some gasoline thrown onto our worshipful bonfire so we can get it going and flamed up. And so we have in the text before us 12, 12 buckets of gasoline that Mary is going to throw on the fire of our worship so that we, like her, would praise God. And this is the second major point. Let your worship focus on God and his mighty deeds. If you look at your life and you discover you are not full of worship, you are not full of praise, then what you need to do is stop and think and consider of about all the things God has blessed you with. And this should motivate you to praise him. And just as antibiotics are the cure for gangrene, so the antibiotic, the spiritual antibiotic for a gangrene, unworshipful heart is to focus on who God is and what he has done. And while we can break up verses 48 and following in a lot of different ways, I'm going to break it up in three different ways. First, Mary praises God directly for how she has been blessed. Look at verse 48. Mary says, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. The word regard means just that. It means to look upon, to gaze upon. And when it's talking about God regarding somebody, it says God regards them. That is, he blesses them. He looks with favor upon them so as to bless them. And like in verse 38, Mary describes herself as this bond slave. It shows her humility. A bond slave is just the lowest of the low people of society and compared to the infinite God, we are but dust. And she puts herself in the correct position, a position of just nothing more than a bond slave. She knows she is a nobody from nowhere that she lives in a very humble state. And yet she praises God because he has regard 
for her. And look at the end of verse 48. Mary gives her second reason for praising God and says, For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And isn't that true? We have blessed Mary and said, blessed. She is the blessed mother of the Savior. And it always will be true from generation to generation. She will be considered blessed even into all eternity. But isn't that true of everyone who knows Christ? I mean, you know, we aren't going to give birth to the Messiah, but face it, we're all blessed if we know Jesus. If you didn't know the Lord, where would you be right now? Have you ever thought of that? Some of, sometimes it's hard to even remember what it was like. After you've been a Christian a while, you can't even, you can't even remember what it was like when you didn't know Jesus. You just can't remember. You, you forget. You know, you look at the nations. You think you would be ruling one of them if you didn't know Jesus? Do you think you'd be rich and famous? Do you think you'd be a person of power? Do you think you would have eternal happiness? That you would be free from the wrath of God if you didn't know Jesus? Do you think your future would have hope if you didn't know him? Listen, people who try to draw happiness for the world are like people who try and quench their thirst by drinking salt water it just makes them more thirsty and a lot of times we forget that just being saved even if you were saved and persecuted all of your life and sick and miserable in this world you would have perfect happiness for all eternity But even if you were the greatest person on earth, even if you had all sorts of power and riches and money and were a ruler of many nations, if you didn't have the Lord, you would be miserable. Because eventually you would be experiencing outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You would be nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. You would be ever dying and never dead. And so we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, am I praising God for the blessing that I have just by merely being saved? You, you go out, you go out into the mall, you go drive around on the freeway, you see all those people and all those cars driving around and you realize that out of all the population of the world, you are one of the chosen choice ones. That God, by his grace, not by anything you've done, not by anything you've deserved, has chosen to save you and call you with a holy calling, calling to bless you for all eternity. That should make you praise God. That should make you praise God. Secondly, Mary praises and magnifies three essential attributes of God. Look at verse 49. Mary says, for the mighty one has done great things for me she calls him the mighty one the mighty one who is working on her behalf to do great things for her and she's amazed about it she's humble about it she's praising god about it and she most likely has in mind the words of the angel who said the power of the most high will overshadow you and now she's had has experienced that very power working in her life she is now carrying the very son of god but you know, a lot of times 
when we look at God's power, when we talk of God's power, what do we think of? Oh, we think of creation. Or we think of the, you know, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. We think of these huge historical miraculous events that God did way back then in another time, in another place, in another culture, and it doesn't really relate to us. I'm sure he is a God of mighty deeds, but how does that relate to me? Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Sure, you will not give birth to the Messiah. Nevertheless, the mighty one has done great things for you. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1. And starting in verse 15, Paul starts to pray. He starts to pray for the Ephesians. He thanks God for their faith. He says, I'm always praying for you. And in verse 17, he mentions somebody, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory. And he says, I hope this very God gives you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And it seems like right at that moment when he says him, Paul just derails. It's interesting to study Paul's prayer. He, he tries to be focused, but he gets derailed. And he's so excited. He's so in love with the Savior. He's so amazed at what Jesus has done for him and what he's done for the Ephesians. He just launches into this credible utterance, a prayer of how God's mighty power works towards every believer. And look at what he says. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, he's just getting started. Now, this is amazing because look at verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? You have God's omnipotence. You have God's omnipotence working And God's omnipotence working toward you to bless you. That is amazing. He goes on to say, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is why you have reasons to praise God. Because God's mighty power has been exerted and will be exerted to bless you for all eternity. And this is something to rejoice in. This is something to praise God about. Now, the fourth reason Mary gives for worshiping God and the second essential attribute of God mentioned in the text is found in verse 49. Mary says there at the end of the verse, and holy is his name. Now, we probably know, most of us know what holiness is. Holiness is to be separate. And we usually think of it as separate from sin. But really, the basic meaning of the word is to be set apart from. And sure, God is set apart from sin, but You have to think about it 
in a much greater and more all-encompassing way. Because God is a spirit, because he is infinite in all of his attributes, he is separate from everything to an infinite degree. Everything in creation he is separate from. He is beyond the heavens. All the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are like a piece of dust on the scales. He is so huge and so vast and so magnificent. He transcends all of his creation to an infinite degree. And this is his part of his holiness. Not just separate from sin, but just totally great and beyond and above all that we could think or imagine. And that is what Mary is talking about here. She thinks about how here she is, a virgin, and now she has conceived in her womb, Emmanuel. And she's just amazed. I don't know if you remember in Isaiah seven, fourteen, right before that, when Ahaz is approached by Isaiah and says from God, ask anything you wish. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. And Ahaz piously says, well, you know, I, I'm not going to test the Lord. And God says, okay. Okay. I will give you a sign that is as deep as Sheol and as high as the heavens. And when he says, I will give you, he doesn't use the you, he used I will give the house of David. So now he has gone from Ahaz. He's gone to the whole house of David. And he says, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then right after that, Isaiah approaches his wife. She gives birth to a son. But there's nothing miraculous there. Nothing as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. But Matthew in Matthew 1.23 lets us know that that very utterance was a prophecy of what happened right here. And this is what Mary was experiencing. This is God's great sign that is as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and they shall call his name God with us, the very son of God. And that is why she is praising God. And that is why you can praise God for he is holy. His ways of doing things are infinitely beyond anything we can imagine. The fifth reason Mary gives for praising God, which is the third essential attribute of God mentioned in verse 50. Look there. The text says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. God's mercy is the great shield that holds back his wrath from unworthy sinners. God's mercy is what preserves all of the corrupted creation. It's what holds back the punishment that the cursed earth and its inhabitants deserve because of their sin and rebellion against him. And so every moment we live off the mercy of God. And this is what she recognizes. His mercy is upon generation after generation. God causes his mercy to fall on the just and the unjust Titus 3 5 speaking of believers says that God has not saved us according to deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy 
And so even though all people, believers and unbelievers, get to receive God's mercy to some degree, yet believers get to receive his mercy into an eternal degree. An eternal degree. For all eternity, you will have God's mercy. And there is nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing you can do to purchase the mercy of God, which saves you. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can't demand it because it's undeserved. It's just freely given by God to unworthy sinners. And God's saving mercy is only extended to a specific group of people, a few, a remnant. And notice how they are defined at the end of verse 50. To those who fear him. Now, I did a little study on this and I thought, you know, I'm going to just put that phrase into my computer and hit the button and see what comes out. I took all of a second and out came all of these passages that talk about those who fear him. And in the New Testament, the only place in the New Testament where those who fear him appears is in this text in verse 50 right there, which just happens to be from Psalm 103, 17. And then all the rest come in the Psalms. And I just want to read you some of the great blessings and mercy that is extended towards those who fear God. Psalm twenty two twenty five says, and this is the one that I think amazes me the most. God will praise those who fear him in the great assembly. Isn't that amazing? Someday when you die or Christ comes back, when you are glorified, when you are standing in his presence, blameless with great joy, and there are myriads of angels, ten thousands upon ten thousands, and all the saints of all the ages, God will look at you and he will praise you in the midst of the assembly. That is something to praise God about. Psalm 25, 14 says, God reveals his secret will to those who fear him. Psalm 33, 18 says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him to deliver their soul from death. Psalm 34, 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Psalm 34, 9 says, those who fear him, there is no want. And 85, 9, salvation is near to those who fear him. And 103, 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness to those who fear him. The passage quoted in our text by Mary is Psalm 103, verse 17. The everlasting loving kindness of the Lord is on those who fear him. Psalm 111, 5 says he has given food to those who fear him. And 145, 19 says he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. And finally, Psalm 147, 11 says the Lord favors those who fear him. So fear God. Receive his mercy and grace for all eternity. Because those who fear him, there is abundant mercy. Now in verses 51 through 53, Mary switches. She switches from kind of praising God for everything he has done for her. And now he is going to praise God for what he has done and is doing for other people. 
She starts out praising God specifically, and now she's moving to others. And what is interesting about these next verses is there's a string of, of verbs here. They're aorist active verbs, which is interesting if you know anything about Greek. For those who don't, it probably doesn't mean much, but this is what it means. All these verbs are usually translated in the past tense. For instance, if you look at the text, you will see things like has done, has scattered, has brought, has exalted, has fulfilled, and has sent away. The problem is is there's disagreement among commentators about the past tense of these verbs. You see, some people see Mary as just nothing more than reflecting upon the past. Others say, wait a second here. She's just been told she's given birth to the Messiah. She she knows right now she is carrying the redeemer of Israel in her womb. She is looking forward to the future. She is giving a prophetic utterance here. The problem is, is the text doesn't say that specifically. Yet everyone agrees that this song is saturated with Hebrew imagery and structure and illusions And everyone agrees that ultimately all of these things will be true in the kingdom of Christ. The context seems to support both a historical view and a future view. The problem some people have is they say, well, Mary couldn't be speaking of the future, Jack, because these are all eras tense verbs. They're all talking about something that happened in the past. But anybody who has studied Bible prophecy knows That frequently when a prophet gives a prophecy of the future, he puts it in the past tense. Why? Because when God predicts the future, when he says something is going to happen, because his will is unthwartable and his word never returns void, it always comes true. And so the prophets often put it into past tense. For instance, if you look at Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant, Christ, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ died on the cross. And he said he was forsaken. He was despised. He was a man of sorrows, a sorrow acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. So he was taken away as a lamb to the slaughter who is silent before his shears. He talks about Jesus dying in the past tense, and yet it's not going to happen for 700 years. It's kind of like your salvation. If I asked you, you know, are you saved? You say, yeah. I said, oh, really? You still sin? Well, yeah. You still in the presence of sin? Yeah. So what are you saved? How are you saved? Well... I'm going to be. Yeah, because the scriptures say we long, we wait for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So how can you call yourself saved if you aren't yet? But you are, but you aren't. And see, that's where you go, well, well, am I or not? I'm confused now. Well, yes. Why? Because when God says you're saved, you're as good as what? Saved. And that's why the scriptures talk about you as having been saved, as being saved and as will be saved in the future. And so how I take this passage after reading all the people is I do think Mary is speaking about the future, but I think she is also relying on her knowledge of God that she has learned from the past. And she is taking all of this imagery, all of these truths from the the Hebrew scriptures, and she is bringing them to the forefront because she knows they are going to be fulfilled in 
the very Messiah who is now in her womb. We see this, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. We already read it, the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy are the poor. We see this incredible picture of the kingdom, right? Isn't that what Jesus was talking about? He was talking to them about the kingdom. And he said, you know, blessed are you and blessed are you and blessed are you. But the problem is, is when we look at that and we think to ourselves, wait a second, Jesus, this, this is not right. I said, you're trying to tell me that I'm happy if I'm sad. I'm happy if I'm rich. I'm happy if I'm persecuted. Hello. What are you talking about? He's talking about the attitudes of a kingdom saint. You see, we need to remember that in this world, the world who is, which is run by Satan has turned the values of God upside down. So those who are poor in spirit, those who are gentle, those who are weak, those who, who are godly are the despised, the hated, the persecuted, the oppressed. Because they humbly submit to God. They are considered the weak, the ones who have Jesus as a crutch. Yet in verse 51, Mary begins to reveal to us the great reversals that are going to come about when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. She starts off with a general statement He has done mighty deeds with his arms, and we've already talked about that, and then gives us a seventh and more specific reason to praise God. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. The reference to God's arm is a Hebrew idiom of his strength, his ability to do things. And notice that God's mighty arm scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He just spreads them out like manure on a field to be plowed under and used for fertilizer. They are nothing to him. The phrase thoughts of their heart might also be translated the imagination or attitudes of their heart. And in this case, their heart is proud. And we know from, you know, Psalm 334 and James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5 something. That God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when you look at, I mean, we live in Burbank, California, entertainment capital of the world. Where they make all of these movies and people get paid $25, to pretend. To pretend. Think about it. It's amazing. And then those people are all over the billboards, all over the signs of sides of huge skyscrapers. Everywhere you go, you see their pictures. They have their own Learjets and bodyguards and houses in 10 places of the world. They're able to spend money so freely because they can't even spend the interest they gain. They have so much money. They live in luxury. And opulence, they are the power brokers of the world, the rich, the famous. They strut around like pompous, proud peacocks, fanning their riches and attracting attention to themselves for all the world to see and flaunt their indulgent and immoral lifestyle. 
Have you ever envied them in your heart? I mean, face it. We probably all have. You probably think, oh, it'd be kind of nice to have what that person has. I mean, it would be kind of nice to be a little bit more famous than I am rather than the housewife who lives in the 1,200 square foot house in the flatland. You know, you, you drive around your old rusty car and it would be kind of nice to go around a limo every once in a while. You know, people pamper me, front of the line. Then we can envy people like that. We can desire to be like them in their heart because they seem to be so prosperous, so happy, so joyful. And if you've ever fallen into that trap, if you've ever thought in your life, oh, I wish I was like rich and famous so-and-so, there is a cure for that. It's Psalm 73. Turn there. Psalm 73. Amazingly, the psalmist fell into the same trap almost. Here's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph, he lived in a town like Burbank, I think. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not troubled as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. And the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression and speak from on high. And they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph's going, what, what am I doing? Trying to be godly. I mean, I... Look at these people. They look pretty happy. They look, they look blessed. They're at ease. They're fat, proud, powerful. And have I been godly for nothing? Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, I was troubled in my spirit. He started snapping out of it. Verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You know what the cure is? You stop. You meditate on the end of those who you are tempted to envy. The psalmist, like many today, like many of us here, 
had fallen into the error of almost envying the wicked. And the cure is to stop and consider their end. What is their end? Look at verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream. When one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And this is why you can praise God. Because the wicked, the oppressive, the indulgent, immoral rulers that oftentimes rule countries and nations will not be doing so in Christ's kingdom. Where are the statues of Lenin and Stalin and Saddam Hussein and Hitler? I'll tell you where they're at. They're broken in pieces and cast into the junkyards of the world. And who will replace the proud rulers who have been brought down? More proud rulers? That's what happens today, but not so in the future. Look at verse 53 at the end. This is the ninth reason you should praise God. And he has exalted those who are humble, diametrically reposed. Do you see the reversal there? There are these rich, powerful, proud-hearted rulers, and they are cast down. They are scattered out. And in place of them, God puts humble people. Though in the world, the rich and powerful often live in luxury and opulence and have everything they want. Yet in the future, they are nothing more than fuel for hell's fire. And the poor and the hungry, on the other hand, look at verse 53, or we are given a 10th reason. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the 11th reason to praise God and send away the rich empty-handed. All those wicked people who are oppressing the poor, who are killing the poor, who are using the poor, who are lording it over the poor, those people go away with nada. And the poor, the hungry, the humble, they are exalted in the kingdom because that's what God values. Don't let this world reverse God's values in your heart. There will be a great reversal in the kingdom. And James has to rebuke his people for this, doesn't he? They were showing partiality to the rich. And James and says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do, not blaspheme, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And the applied answer is yes and yes. So why are you showing partiality towards them? I mean, you could be kind to them, but don't treat them extra special. They aren't going to be any more exalted Then anybody else, as a matter of fact, the humble people are the ones who will rule and reign with Christ forever. And all of these things are reasons to praise God because the great reversal is coming. And finally, Mary praises God at the very end. Notice for the covenant that God is now fulfilling through the child in her womb, the covenant that was made to Abraham and David. Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah prophesied that a child would be born, a son would be given. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it says what? And the government will rest upon his shoulder. This is the other great reversal. You got a child and the government is resting on his shoulder? 
That seems backwards. And yet this child grows up to be the king of kings and lord of lords and the wicked rulers are no more and only the righteous one remains. Verse 54 says, and he has given help to Israel, his servants in remembrance of his mercy. What mercy is that? The very mercy he spoke to our fathers. To who? To Abraham. And who else? His descendants after descendants forever. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant promised that there would be a ruler who would come and set up a kingdom of righteousness. And Mary and all the Jews of her time longed for this to happen. And it's going to happen when Jesus returns again. And as you leave here today, I hope you think about this. You know, what do you think happened Look at, look at the very last verse. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Luke just kind of comes down out of the heights of heaven and says, oh, she stayed three months and then returned home. What do you think they did? What do you think Elizabeth and Mary did for those three months? They praised God. And as you leave here today, I hope you fix your heart to do the same because you have reasons to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learn from this text. And there's so much more here, but I just pray that we would be a people who want to worship you diligently, who want to exalt you and rejoice exceedingly in what you have done. Father, we just ask that you would cause us to be a people who worship you, change us into those kind of people by your grace and mercy, for you have blessed us exceedingly. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.